everybody and welcome to the program. It is uh, Tuesday night. It's great to have you here. Um, if you were watching our program last night, you may have seen an interview that I conducted with a one-time bodyguard of Casey Anthony. And you might say, look, it's been 15 years. Yesterday, in fact, was the anniversary of the day that little Kaylee's body was discovered kicking off a sensational trial and an acquittal of, of Casey Anthony, her mother. Um, he was not just a bodyguard. He says he witnessed something that is monumental to the story that has endured for 15 years. The story that Casey told, that she didn't murder her daughter, that in fact her daughter drowned in the backyard pool and that her father, George, for whatever reason, covered it up and then was aggressively demanding Casey do the same thing. At the time, many of us thought it sounded absolutely preposterous, but it was the defense theory in court, and the jury did acquit. The problem is, the story the bodyguard tells is of something that happened inside the Anthony home, and that is something that the bodyguard said he witnessed. That he witnessed George Anthony begging, aggressively begging Casey to reveal where the child was. Now think about it. It doesn't make any sense if the defense theory is that George would have known from day one. The child was dead. They were all covering it up as a family. Instead, this person says no one ever asked him and he never told. So with that information, tonight I have an exclusive interview with Casey's defense attorney. And I pose the question to him. If the bodyguard saw George Anthony aggressively begging his daughter for information as to where the child was, how could it be possibly true that the child died weeks earlier in the backyard pool and that George was covering it up? You will be amazed when you hear his answer. Not only that, something else Cheney Mason told me, and that is um, in the trial preparations, what Casey was not allowed to do. I've talked about this before has to do with hair and makeup. And you may think that means nothing, unless you're a woman. Try going on TV without hair and makeup. Try going into a courtroom and looking average or normal without hair and makeup. Now wait till you hear what happened to Casey before trial. And he also divulges why they had to move the furniture in the courtroom and in the jail. That's all coming up in just a moment. Also, it is so rare that we had the opportunity to hear a serial killer in his own words describe why he did the things he did, when he did them, what he did, and who he did these things to. But John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown from back in the 70s, he made recordings with his lawyer pre-trial. It was all in an effort to avoid the death penalty. But those recordings are detailed and many of them have never before been heard. But there is a very important podcaster who's very connected to the case, who is now revealing the tapes for the very first time. He is on the show again tonight. You're gonna to hear some of the more harrowing accounts from John Wayne Casey, just casually describing like this moment you're about to hear, casually describing the death of a teenager. Take a listen. I am assuming from that point forward, I don't remember if I killed him or I just left him on the floor. I do know that he was dead. I don't remember. Imagine just 
having so many kills under your belt that you just can't remember that one. I'm not sure if I killed him or not. He was dead anyway. The callous disregard of what the rest of us on the planet consider sacred will absolutely leave you breathless when you're going to hear those tapes in just a moment. That's coming up. And then also, have you heard the name Sam Haskell? If you have, but you can't place it, you are forgiven. He's a big, famous Hollywood agent and producer, like big time, like connected to all the biggest stars. Um, the thing is, is that he's also connected to a son with the same name, Sam Haskell IV. And Sam Haskell IV is not living up to that extraordinary Hollywood royalty name. Instead, Sam Haskell IV is showing up in a courtroom and far from the glamour and the glitz of his very famous and successful father, Sam Haskell IV looks like this in court. No shirt, bag of lunch, chained at the belly and charged with three murders. His wife, his wife's mom, his wife's dad. We believe that it was the torso of his wife that showed up in a duffel bag Still being tested, not yet confirmed, but pretty, pretty clear. But what about the parents? Where's the rest of his wife? Where, where are his wife's parents? It is an astounding fall uh, from grace. And I will tell you that that appearance you just saw sparked a whole new theory about where this case may end up going. But we're going to begin tonight with this exclusive new information about the Casey Anthony trial. This week marks 15 years since the remains of that beautiful little girl, Casey's daughter, Kaylee. Um, 15 years since she was discovered six months after she vanished. Hold on to your hat, but Kaylee would be 18 years old tonight. And just think about that, all those years lost. It's hard to believe. She might even be a freshman in college right now. Later in the show, I'm going to tell you what her family told me today, what they hope that you will do to honor the memory of this little girl who seems to be forgotten in the circus of Casey Anthony, her mother. But they're hoping you're gonna do something this week and then every week after tonight. I'm gonna to tell you all about that. First though, I wanna share some new and never before heard details about what went on behind the scenes of Casey Anthony's sensational murder trial. Casey spent two and a half years fighting the charges against her and then in the end she was acquitted of Kaylee's murder. She was also acquitted of aggravated manslaughter of a child and acquitted of aggravated child abuse. And you would think that after all this time, 15 years, and all of the coverage and the Netflix series and the documentaries ad nauseum, you would think there's really not much more you could learn about this case. I myself sat in that courtroom every single day of the trial. But even I have been surprised about some of the new details <clears throat> that I've learned just this week. On last night's show, we heard a witness describe how the day after Casey made bail, before her trial, she was back home with her parents. And within 24 hours, there was this heated confrontation with her father, George, in which, to the witness, it seemed that George was desperate to get answers as to the whereabouts of little Kaylee Marie Anthony, two and a half years old. That is a very important detail. In this whole saga, it is perhaps the most important detail because it appears to contradict by fact 
the defense's theory that Kaylee drowned in the backyard pool and that George, her grandfather, covered it up from day one. How is that possible? If he's dis- beseeching Casey, please, where is this little girl? How could it be true that he knew already from weeks ago that she drowned in the pool and that George had actually been covering it all up? Earlier, I had the opportunity to sit down with Casey's attorney, Cheney Mason. It is his 80th birthday today. He's an excellent, excellent attorney. I sat down for an exclusive interview about all of the things that happened before, during, and after the trial that we were not privy to at the time, and there are quite a few. I asked him if he had known about George's desperate efforts to get Casey to talk. If he'd known that, would the defense team have actually tried to implicate George in Kaylee's disappearance? And his response to that is actually um, pretty fascinating. I also asked him about all the challenges involved in representing such a high-profile client, including the fact that Casey was forbidden to even cut her hair before the case. So when you look at these pictures of her in court and you wonder about the appearance, so much speculation about her appearance in court. Her hair was so long, she wore so little makeup, if any, and dressed in such a dowdy way, well, that might explain at least part of it. Forbidden by the jail to get a a haircut, her lawyer says. I asked Cheney Mason why he asked the judge to move the defense table away from the gallery so that it was directly facing the jury instead, and why they had Casey cover her mouth while talking to them, and they covered theirs as well, not just in court, but also in the jail. Here's my conversation with Casey Anthony's attorney, Cheney Mason. One of the one of the issues I never knew about was the bodyguard who was dispatched by the bail bondsman to watch over Casey in her home for the eight days uh, after she was released from jail, but before the trial. His name is uh, Rob Dick. And Rob made some observations of Casey's behavior when she arrived home from having been um, detained and, and was released on bail. I want you to just hear the the piece of the interview he gave me about what he witnessed um, and how he saw George Anthony uh, beseeching Kaylee, Casey as to the whereabouts of, of Kaylee. T- take a listen to this soundbite. She'd been released the evening before and we'd gone home and we awoke to a disturbance between George going after Casey. I mean, he's shaking her and he's saying, you know, you're going to tell me where my granddaughter is. I mean, he's yelling and we actually had to kind of pull him off and separate him. And Casey, you know, is not showing any emotion over the incident, more just yelling back at her dad, you know, and she said, stop acting like an effing cop. So Cheney, when I heard that um, observation, I couldn't help but look back at the opening statements in in the defense case, and that was that George had found a lifeless body of his granddaughter, Kaylee Anthony, in the pool. But that wouldn't square with the frustration of demanding forcefully from Casey, where's the child um, that this bodyguard witnessed in the privacy of the home? Well, I can't help you with that for a couple of reasons. At that point in time, I had never met Casey. I was not involved in the case. I never met this bail bondsman that you're talking about. 
I, you just said the names first time I remember hearing the name, so I can't vouch for or challenge the credibility of anything he said, allegedly said, or remembers. I, I can't tell you. Uh, I, I can only know what I learned after uh, being in the case, and uh, it doesn't fit with anything that uh, that the defense team learned and dealt with, uh, or obviously what was presented to the presented to the jury. If if you had heard that information from, and again, this is the the bodyguard hired by the bail bondsman to make sure that Casey uh, stayed put. His name's Rob Dick. If you had heard that recollection and that observation, would you have felt uncomfortable uh, with that theory of defense? I, I have no idea. Uh, I've heard you heard him say it, and what he—that's the first time. I see uh, the verdict was 12 years ago, 15 years since she was found. I've been on the case for uh, 13 years or 14. I never heard that before in any capacity or any suggestion in writing, testimony, reports, claims at all from law enforcement, from independent people, from uh, Mr. Anthony's lawyers or anybody else. You have just told me for the first time. So I don't know what I... Does it change anything for you? Value, if any, I assign to it. Do what? Does it change I'm anything sorry. for you? Uh, no, it doesn't. And, and the reason is, I've heard so many different interpretations of so many different things about this case the entire time and getting ready for trial and trial in all the years since then. And uh, I don't know that I have any reason to believe or not believe anybody. I know what I believe, and I know what I felt from the moment I met her and through the entire uh, thousands of hours of investigation uh, that I spent on the case and my team and trying the case in the courtroom at real time uh, no, hear, hearing that uh, doesn't mean a lot to me. You might compare that to what I know you are aware of, and that is the televised uh, phone call that Casey had with her mother and her father when she, she was in jail. They, they went to, to visit her, and the way that's done uh, in Orange County was they were on a, a little a closed-circuit uh, camera and phone, and they were arguing with each other candidly. And uh, George probably, well, I'm really confident that he did know that it was being taped and whatever, but Casey did not. So what she had to say back in that interview was probably more, more candidly valued than something else. But I can't tell you, but you know, we can all guess, uh, and about that subject you're raising, you know more about it than I do. I remember um, during the trial, I was in the courtroom every day, and in the beginning, you and Jose Baez and Casey would speak, and then within a few days, you began speaking with a, uh, your note cards in front of your mouths like, um, like professional coaches do in football games. You had received word that there were lip readers, but what I didn't realize, and this seems to be new, is that you were fearful that that was happening in the jail as well. Can you explain that? 
Uh, yes. Uh, Casey was maintained in an isolation cell in a special part of the jail for the whole time. Uh, she was in there for about three years. And when I would go out to visit her, whether it was me or uh, Liz Fryer with me or Jose on occasion, uh, we were aware of the special, uh, I'll say, cautions they tried to take. They wouldn't let her into the, the normal conference room where we were, and we learned because they had up above cameras and microphones focused on us. Uh, and uh, it didn't do a lot of good to object to it. So what we did was uh, whenever we were getting Casey in and she would come into the room, we would reposition our seats so that all of our backs were facing where the entrance was and where they could have had the equipment. And then we had to uh, maintain uh, covering our faces, our mouths, as we talked and looked at each other because of the fact that we were being filmed and listened to the entire time. Were you ever concerned, Cheney, that there were, there were lip readers, even as you were trying to keep your voices low or conceal your mouths, that there were actually lip readers hired by anybody untowards uh, through the jail? I don't know if they were at the jail or not. I know that they were throughout the trial and some proceedings before the trial. What didn't the press find out, um, either all throughout that media circus or in the ensuing 15 years since? Well, you know, look, uh, I know you're part of that world, and that's okay. You've always been good, as far as I know, fair to me. But the fact of the matter is, when you talk to an old war bird like me who's been trying murder cases for over half a century, you learn that you don't really have any friends in the media. Uh, as a general rule, in trying to do their job, they take the shortcut and make up their mind. And in this case, uh, most of the local media was uh, already convinced of what they believe the facts of the case were or would be shown to be well before any uh, judicial proceedings. It was clear, and I can tell you that I know absolutely that after the case was over, there were at least three members of local press, both television and newspaper, who were fired and deserved to be fired. Uh, throughout the process, uh, even even not just the lip reading, uh, Ashley, there, uh, it was revealed to me several months prior to the trial when there was a hearing, some questions were asked of me by the court, and I was writing some notes on my desk, and there was a camera up in the balcony of the courtroom, if you remember how that was, uh, that was shining down, uh, peering down over my shoulder, and... It was later revealed to me by a member of the press, uh, who has, has since resigned himself, uh, revealed to me that they were focusing their long-range camera in on the notes on my desk as I wrote them to try to, to read and understand whatever I was doing, which is very offensive, quite frankly, uh, 
I didn't know it at the time, but I learned it very quickly, I think one or two days. And thereafter, we altered everything, uh, including, uh, you may recall, uh, the location of the desk at time of trial. I, I convinced the judge that I wanted the defense table to be on the side of the room facing the jury where there could be no media or other observers behind us. And that's what we did. Tomorrow, you're going to see part two of my exclusive interview with Cheney Mason, Casey Anthony's attorney, on this 15th anniversary of little Kaylee being discovered. We talked a lot about Cheney's friendship with Casey. He once actually said he thought of her as a daughter. And when everyone was looking for Casey after the trial, she was actually staying with Mason and his family. I also asked Cheney Mason what Casey is doing now and if she is happy. Can I ask you, is Casey a happy person? Is she a happy person? Oh boy, you know, I don't know how to answer that. But he did answer it, and what he said will probably surprise a lot of you. That's coming up tomorrow night, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on News Nation, and still to come tonight. He grew up as Hollywood royalty, but now Sam Haskell IV is accused of butchering his wife and her parents and then ditching their remains. The problem is, only one single torso has been recovered so far, likely his wife. But where is the rest of her, and where are her parents? As far as Haskell goes, he just showed up in court the other day, looking, let's just say, less than Hollywood royalty. The story's next. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Ever a business depended on connections, it is show business. And Samuel Haskell IV had connections. Uh, let's start with his name. He is the son of Samuel Haskell III, who was a big-time producer and talent agent, once representing uh, George Clooney and Dolly Parton and Whoopi Goldberg. Um, Sam Haskell IV, however... Not quite as, you know, shiny and fancy. He was directing low-budget slasher movies, which ends up being very ironic because he is now accused of no fewer than three murders worthy of those films. The victims are his Chinese-born wife, May, and May's mother and stepfather, all of whom live together with the Haskell's three little boys in Los Angeles. 
a little over a month ago on November 7th, Haskell allegedly hired day laborers to haul away some trash bags from the family's house. One of those laborers decided to take a peek inside the bags, and what he saw horrified him. Said he thought uh, it looked like body parts, called 911. This is the maddening part. By the time the police arrived, the bags were gone. Later, Haskell was reportedly caught on video dumping one of the bags in a dumpster five miles away. And the next day, a human torso, believed to be that of the Haskell uh, wife, it's May Haskell, uh, that's who they think it was in the duffel bag, torso. Last week, this younger Haskell appeared in court to face three murder charges, despite the fact that no other remains have actually been found. And the torso still hasn't officially been identified even. So it's a very strange sort of progress of events here. But that was even more strange, this picture. I mean, this video was like very, very strange to see this in America. He's naked from the waist up. But we are kind of surmising that it's because the police put him in a so-called suicide vest. You see that thing on the bottom with the um, Velcro? Right that? The, the suicide vest looks like it may have just slipped down. Those vests actually don't have any sleeves, and they, they can't be tied into a, a knot, or they can't be tied into any way that you could hurt yourself or kill yourself. That's why they're called suicide vests. Uh, this younger Haskell clutching his lunch with the uh, belly chains and the handcuffs and the, what we think is a suicide vest and naked torso. He has not entered a formal plea. He is due back in court next month. Hopefully we'll get a little bit more, I don't know, intelligence at that time. But right now, I want to bring in Caitlin Becker, who's the senior reporter for the DailyMail.com. She's the host of Daily Mail Crime on TikTok, and she's a victim's advocate for Project Cold Case. Do we have any idea, Caitlin, what a possible motive could have been if Sam Haskell IV is guilty of this crime? You know, Ashley, these questions are always super complicated, but Daily Mail has spoken to sources that have said there was marital troubles and that for years May had wanted a divorce and she was hesitant to do so because the source told us that she was really afraid that his family money, family power would be able to hire an expensive lawyer who would prevent her from keeping custody of her children. Any, um, I mean, just to hear that is just so just so tragic, and it's sort of the, the story we hear so often as well of domestic violence victims. But um, what's the story about the, the the bare torso, you know, showing up shirtless with the what looked like the suicide vest down at his waist in court? You're exactly right on all of the points that you made leading into this this intro here. It is a suicide vest, and a court deputy told Daily Mail after the hearing that essentially the Velcro had just sort of unvelcroed and kind of slipped down, which is why you see that. That I don't know if that explanation sits well with me because looking at these photos right here, yeah. it's folded underneath of the belly chain. So I don't know if maybe the Velcro was broken, but we were told by someone in court by a deputy that the Velcro just had unvelcroed and that's what left us with this really petrifying image of him. You never know if there's some some aggression or some violence or something that happened, you know, behind the scenes where deputies just could not get a um, couldn't fix it or couldn't get a shirt on him. You just you never know. But it is a disturbing image, to say the least. What do we know about the, the home? Like what what have they been able to put together with regard to evidence of this poor wife and her um, and her missing parents? 
Well, Ashley, apparently there was quite a bit of evidence found inside of the home. According to a deputy district attorney, items of evidence were found in the house that, quote, indicated he dismembered the body. So there was essentially evidence indicating that the bodies were not only dismembered, but they possibly were dismembered inside the house. And in addition to that, the district attorney said that what they found didn't match the torso. So multiple bodies were dismembered inside of this house. I don't know if it was he who did it. Of course, he's, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but it seems as though there were multiple victims dismembered inside of this house and only one of them was the torso and the remains didn't match that. Well, the three little boys they shared um, were, you know, all things considered okay. And a source has told us that that, um, it's Sam's parents it's, so it's Samuel Haskell III and his wife who have custody of the three little boys. We had thought they might be in foster care. Do you, do you know anything else about this? From what we understand, May didn't have a very large family. It seemed that it was just her, her mom, and her stepdad here. So it didn't surprise me that the children ended up with his family. As of now, there is no reporting to indicate that police believe his family had anything to do with this crime. So it doesn't really surprise me that the children ended up with family versus foster care. I mean, the whole point of the foster care system is to place them with family. And we know they are well off and are capable of caring, at least financially, for these children. It's all so sad. And hopefully we're going to learn more um, when he makes his next appearance. Caitlin Becker, appreciate this. Thank you. Thanks, Ashley. Coming up, the words of John Wayne Gacy. From the mouth of John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer himself. Um, Some never before heard recordings of Gacy's voice. He is naming names and places and how he killed his victims and how he hid their bodies and just who he simply cannot remember killing. The Gacy tapes, you're gonna hear them next. There is a world of difference between reading what John Wayne Gacy did to more than 30 men and boys and hearing him actually describe it. It is a whole other level of creepy. When you listen to a serial killer matter-of-factly chronicling his kills, there are virtually miles and miles of never-before-heard audio tapes of John Wayne Gacy made by his attorney back in 1980. Back then, they were trying to avoid the death penalty, and spoiler alert, it did not work. He was executed by the state of Illinois for murdering 33 young men and boys, most of whom he buried under his house. You're about to hear more of Gacy's voice on tape, like how he handcuffed a teenage boy who worked for him and then just simply left him to die. I want to bring in Bob Mata. He's an attorney who hosts the Defense Diaries podcast. Uh, his father was Gacy's trial attorney and gave the tapes over to his son as a 21st birthday present. His most recent podcasts began dropping last week with these tapes, and he's back with us tonight. It's great to have you again. You have me absolutely transfixed, Bob, uh, with these podcasts and these tapes. I mean, it's just, it's bone chilling to hear, you know, John Wayne Gacy just so casually uh, and, and callously to describe these things. Can you take me through the, the third victim and set up one of the clips for me? Like, I think his name was uh, John Butkovich, 18 years old. Can you take me from there and explain what it is you're about to play for us? Yeah, hey, Ashley, how you doing? Um, it's, so John Butkovich was 
young guy, 17-year-old. So I think it was around July 31st of uh, 1978, which was the year that Gacy ended up getting arrested in December. Uh, John was uh, uh, one of his employees for PDM, and John Gacy was a contractor. And uh, Bukovich was a kid who had worked for him. And there was a dispute that arose. Uh, and the, the backstory was that, that John's father owned properties in and around Chicago, and he was allowing John to move into one of the apartments. Gacy had an agreement with John's father to put carpeting in there. And John, when he tried to collect his pay from Gacy, Gacy said, well, no, you owe me for the carpeting. And John Bukovich said, well, no, you, my father owes you for that. He owns the apartment. So basically what you're hearing here is that argument took place earlier in the day. Gacy then, and Bukovich was with two friends earlier in the day at Gacy's house. He then leaves. They go down to the city, out to the spot by the lake. Later that night, like Gacy always did, he went out and started trolling. But he was specifically looking for John Bukovich that night. Unfortunately, he found him, got him back to the house. And what you're going to hear right now is Gacy describing what happened when they got back to the house and what happened after that. Okay, let's have a Arguing back and forth. And uh, I talked him into putting the handcuffs on. Once he got the handcuffs on, I pinned him down and I told him, I said, now you might as well settle down and get it straight for once and for all because I am not going to give you a check. I said, I'm going to shoot. What the hell you do? Uh, and then he said, let me up, let me up. I said, I ain't letting you up until I get done explaining it. I said, you know, goddamn well, you owe me for the carpeting. You're not getting your money until I get fine. And then he told me that if I didn't let him up, or when I, if I would let him up, he'd kill me. Threatened to kill me. I am assuming from that point forward, I don't remember if I killed him or I just left him on the floor. I do know that he was dead. Around 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning when I came out of my bed just doesn't even remember if he killed a, a teenager. Did he ever at any point in any of the tapes that you've been able, I don't even know if you've gotten through all of them, but did he ever express any remorse or any regret or any guilt or any sympathy for all these people he killed and all the lives he destroyed? None. And that was the most terrifying thing about him. When I, and I've listened to all the tapes at this point, and it's bone chilling. It really is to, to just know that there was a human being that existed on the planet that did this kind of damage and had absolutely no remorse whatsoever. He would talk about killing kids as if he was taking out the garbage or doing the dishes. It's, it's like that, that part of it is really what rattled me to my core more than anything else. I think that's what uh, I think that's what it is. You look at these faces, these clown faces and these pictures and you just wonder how again, how far can one member of our flock stray away from us? All right, I'm going to plug your uh, podcast again cuz listening to these tapes is just I mean it really is unbelievable. The Defense Diaries. Bob Mata, I'm not done with you yet. You got to come back again and uh, <laughs> and drop a few more of these tapes with us. I so appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Always. Thank you. All right, and you will hear from him again, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, but coming up next, uh, a wealthy mother and her dentist son. One of them charged with putting out a hit on a former in-law, and the other one convicted of it. 
and spending his first night tonight in prison. First night of so many more nights to come. The Adelsons of Florida, a family murder melodrama with some big new updates when we come back. Sometimes it takes a decade or so, but the wheels of justice tend to catch up to a slow man. Uh, take, for instance, that wealthy Florida dentist who arranged um, to have his little sister's ex-husband murdered. Well, he just learned his fate. And remember, Charlie Adelson, um, the guy they convicted about a month ago of first-degree murder, conspiracy, and solicitation, that's him. His trial took eight days, but deliberations took just three hours, and the jury made it official. Charlie gunned down his ex-brother-in-law in his own garage back in 2014. Guilty. That victim was Dan Markell. He was marked for death when he refused to let Charlie's little sister, Wendy, Wendy Adelson, uh, his ex-wife, move away with their two kids when they split. Markell had been a law professor at Florida State University. His killer, Charlie, was just dumb enough to chat through the murder plans while being wiretapped. But today he didn't have much to say when a judge sentenced him officially to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yet, he did have these 11 words for the court. I would just like to say that I maintain my innocence. And that was it. That was it. Boom. Less than a second and a half. The apple may not fall far from the tree, it turns out. Because um, Charlie Adelson's own mother, Donna, was in court herself this week. The prosecutors say that uh, killing Dan Markell uh, was a family affair. Donna allegedly, they say, was the mastermind. She was arrested exactly one week after Charlie's conviction at the Miami airport with a one-way ticket to Vietnam. Yesterday, Donna Adelson pleaded not guilty to the same charges that her son Charlie is going down for. Um, as for the victim's family, Dan Markell's father told the court today about his sleepless nights haunted by the death of his son. I wake up in the middle of the night in a terrible quest. The thought of Dan's murder and all that has happened. There is not a single day in my life since Danny's death that in one way or another he does not enter into my thoughts. And I miss him with all my heart. I am constantly reminded of Dan's murder and his death. It's always amazing to watch the killer listening to that, right? Wondering what's going on in there. For it now, that, for now, that lady right there, Charlie's little sister, Wendy, that was Dan's ex, the murder victim's ex. Uh, Wendy Adelson has not been charged with anything. So just watch this face. Coming up next, uh, for 15 years, people have come to the place where little Kaylee Anthony's body was discovered back in 2008. It set in motion one of the biggest trials of the century, one where her mother, Casey Anthony, was acquitted. But this week, on this very sad anniversary, there is one request that Casey Anthony's parents, George and Cindy Anthony, have for you tonight and for this holiday season that would mean the world to them and to the memory of their little granddaughter. And I have that for you next.
It has been 15 years since the remains of Kaylee Anthony were discovered and her mother, Casey, was charged and tried and acquitted of her daughter's murder. We have several exclusive interviews ahead this week with people closely connected to the trial and will have never before heard details from the case. Tomorrow, part two of my interview with Casey Anthony's attorney, Cheney Mason. He is still in touch with Casey and he has an update on Casey's life today. And then the man who presided over the case, Judge Belvin Perry, with exclusive details about why a spectacle like the Casey Anthony trial could not happen again now. And Gerardo Bloise, the CSI technician who searched Casey Anthony's car and the Anthony home after Kaylee's remains were discovered. He'll speak with us as well. All of that is ahead this week. But before we sign off tonight, I do have a request that I received today from Kaylee Anthony's grandparents, Cindy and George Anthony. Please don't let Kaylee be forgotten in all of the coverage of her mother and of the case. They told me that they are troubled on these anniversaries when the attention is never on Kaylee, whom they say they miss so much. So I would like to remember Kaylee tonight with Cindy's own words, what she said during her eulogy at her granddaughter Kaylee's memorial service. The moment I first saw Kaylee Marie, and the instant she was placed into my arms, she stole my heart forever. She wouldn't wake up crying, she'd wake up laughing. She'd wake up cooing, she'd wake up just smiling. She's always a happy child. She loved her family very much. She loved her animals. She loved her tinker and her tilly. Her and I used to spend a lot of time together in the pool, and I'm going to miss those days. My favorite times. My favorite times when she would come in on Sunday morning and wake me up, and her face would be right in my face. Cece, wake up. She'd be right there. Every night before we go to bed, she'd go outside and she'd look up at the stars and want to say goodnight to the stars and the moon. And if it was a cloudy night, we'd just say, well, the stars have already gone to bed. They're covered up with a blanket that, that God gave them because they were cold. Fifteen years ago. You will probably understand this. And you've probably seen it. You may have even uh, partaken in it. But over the years, thousands of people, well-wishers, have come to Orlando or they've come across town because they live there. And they have left mementos at or near the spot where Kaylee's remains were discovered. Um, but George and Cindy have a request. They say that it is often disruptive to that neighborhood and particularly to an elementary school that is right nearby. So tonight they'd like to ask that in lieu of leaving stuffed toys or candles or any of those mementos, that you instead consider making a donation to a children's charity in your own local community. And they ask that maybe you consider making it in Kaylee's name this holiday season. But then perhaps you consider doing that all year long as well. Um, the Anthony's mentioned to me they are supporters of St. Jude's Hospital as well. Um, but I'm sure whatever you out there tonight are able to do and whatever charity you choose, uh, it will be certainly much 
appreciated and quite frankly it is the season she is such a cute cute little girl thank you everyone for watching tonight appreciate it we'll see you back here tomorrow night our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.